said, sometimes with the British film industry, it's hard to know if we're waving or drowning. Let's find out. Welcome to another Britflix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today we're going to be talking, we're going to be asking the big question that I didn't know we'd need to ask, but two filmmakers have come along and introduce us in a minute. Who killed British cinema? Do you want to introduce yourselves, guys? And because I've got two guests today, and uh, let me know your roles on the documentary "Who Killed British Cinema." Yes, I'm uh, Vinod Mahindru. I'm co-director of the um, feature documentary and the co-author of the book "Who Killed British Cinema." Yeah, and I'm Robin Dutta. I'm the, also the co-director and co-producer of "Who Killed British Cinema" um, and the editor of the film as well. Brilliant, thanks, guys. So, who wants to tell me and tell the listener even? Uh, a brief synopsis, as to, if there's not enough clues in the title, a brief synopsis to what Who Killed British Cinema is about, really. Yes, uh, I'll start by saying it's a feature documentary really about um, the um, structures in UK film policy that have been in place for the last sort of 20 years mm-hmm. and uh, analysing those structures in respect of are they breeding a, a platform for new and uh talented filmmakers in the UK to be able to create their own works, have their work seen, and more importantly, create employment in the film industry in Britain. So it's really analysing UK film policy and all the bureaucracies that are in place over the last 20 years and you know, using both um, voices from independent British filmmakers as well as people who have worked in the industry, established names in the industry as well. Now, I think, I think for the listeners, the clues in the title, this isn't a celebration then of those policies and the way that film might be made accessible and develop filmmaking talent in the regions, is it? No, it's definitely a, uh, it's definitely a critique because mm-hmm. um, the issue and what Robin and I have uncovered over the years is that um, despite the sort of line in the media that we have a fantastic British film industry and that we win all these awards and... Gary Oldman has won the Oscar for Best Actor. That means that the British film industry is thriving. Um, Whilst we recognise those talents and we endorse those talents, um, it's not really indicative of the um, real industry as such. In other words, how many people are really getting work in the industry? Is it a select few? Are there new directors and new ideas being able to grow from British ideas? Like, for example, Harry Potter is a British idea but all the revenue goes to Hollywood because Hollywood produces it. So Britain really has kind of not allowed its talents to really sort of um, flourish and to really be able to, you know, go on to the next generation of filmmakers by passing torches and by building bridges and by being able to um, grow from their ideas. What's happened is, is that we've become subservient to Hollywood and allowed Hollywood to exploit our ideas and our talents. It's just like what Matthew Vaughan said, Stuart. Um, he said it perfectly that we're a service industry to Hollywood. Um, now, the knock-on effect that that has to British culture and to the young people who are doing media and film courses all over the country is huge. But again, the media and everything, the way it's portrayed is we're doing fantastically. And bear in mind, we are only talking about public funds the way public funds are distributed and associated with the British film industry. Private funds, we don't really have much right to say anything but we have a there's a cultural responsibility for the government uh, and for the people like the BFI and Creative England to make it accessible for filmmakers who want to make films no 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 you're right there's a there's a there's a there's a 
there's an accountability to how government spends the taxpayers' money that you know some media fund mm. doesn't doesn't have. So I think you're I think mm. you're right in your your assertion to sort of query how that's being developed and what the outcomes are. And it's quite mm. it's quite funny the way it's a funny ha ha, but it's funny in a sense um, the way you describe the, 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 the sort of the Matthew Devon quote about being a service in Hollywood about great ideas coming out of Britain. But the 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 exploitation of those ideas and the and the focus on what that intellectual property might be is somehow somebody else's responsibility. You know, the future of a the future of a thing is is for someone else to deal with. It's almost like it's almost like Brit, Britain acts like a kind of plucky amateur that's that's happy to find out something, but just pass it on to somebody else to go and do the, the grown up work on it. You know. Well, that's really true. I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, if you look at our, our attitude towards music, it's the opposite. You know, our music culture tends to be pioneering. It tends to be leading the way. Mm. And what we're advocating in Who Could Produce Cinema is that we used to have that um, uh, kudos, if you like, uh, globally. But now we are we've, we've allowed our film policies to become subservient and we've allowed um, culturally, like Robin said, for us to sort of negate culture. You know, so in other words, uh, we were talking earlier about student living. If you look at students now, they're playing American football, they're going to proms, they're celebrating Halloween. None of this is part of British culture, you know, yeah. and this is all to do with Hollywood. This is all Hollywood. This is all to do with Hollywood promoting itself, making itself look cool. You know, it's, it's, uh, it sells itself. People start to talk and sing in American accents. We start to talk in American slang. And that's all to do with films. You know, so if you negate the culture of your of your, the sensibility of your culture, you essentially um, uh, let go of something that's very very pertinent, very very powerful, priceless. And this is the thing, Stuart. We're from a we're from a real low level wrong in the film industry. I mean, you know, we've made shorts, we've written a couple of features. You know, you could argue that we. I could argue that I probably haven't worked hard enough to try and get to that stage stature when I can make films and so forth. But there's loads of other people there who are just as more talented than us, but don't get the opportunity. Like the case in point in our film, we had Neil Oseman. Mm -hmm. He was a phenomenal talent. This kid is amazing. Mm -hmm. He's now becoming a proper top-rated DP. Mm -hmm. um, he, he is a filmmaker. Mark Jevons is making another feature film um, uh, off his own back, but again, it's getting out there, which is going to be the problem for him, I suspect. Um, so we're talking from a real ground level. That was our experience. That's where we were coming from. But then what we were noticing and we were speaking to senior people, it kind of trickled down and they were explaining to us why we are where we are. Um, and so basically the, the problem is goes right to the top. That's why people like even Americans like Spike Lee and people like that, they struggle to raise finance for their films because we've um, in America and around the world, the film industry has become like a, um, like a drug addiction. So they want everybody wants quick fixes. There's no chance to have these intelligent films and, um, you know, these deep, deep stories about our own culture and our own identities. So this is the whole superhero saga, which, again, there's a place for that. There's, of course, there's a place for that. But it should be the government's responsibility and uh, public spending organizations responsibility to allow for that cultural. Well, um, yeah, no, no, it's interesting. It's interesting that kind of look, because I don't I don't think that in, in the in from the from the lowly rung I sit in terms of the film industry and looking at how it goes about, about uh, looking at how public policy certainly shapes itself to be at the, at the, be on the side of the filmmaker. It, it feels mm. very limited in its, in its, um, what do you call it? Its impact. I mean, obviously yeah. individuals that get 
selected and or some development funding, you know, well done to them. You know, they've yeah. they've 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 got a bit of money. But that 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 only I mean, I've had enough people on this podcast tell me making a film's the easy bit. Getting a yes, film, getting is. a getting a film seen is is where is where you, where the business is. You know, that's the business of filmmaking is that you make a film and then it gets an audience and an audience is what makes the film money. Um, well you talk about development funding like there's there's loads of people that we know as well that have received development money and you know you give somebody two million pounds to go out and make a feature film great but the people who are giving that money know fully well that they're most likely going to fail hmm. because they have no access to the cinema unless a hollywood studio comes and picks up the film and they'll probably pay you half the money that you spent on making the film um and then get into the cinema and then put the pr and the marketing finances in to get it into the cinema um then then you've already <laughs> All that, so basically you've got no, um, you've got no route to market. Is what you say? So giving the development money, giving the pat on the back, getting the endorsement, still doesn't mean anything unless a Harvey. Well, I say that a Harvey Weinstein comes in and buys your film. Yeah, which um, which, which is arguably what was the success for, say, something like King's Speech, wasn't it? I mean, yes, his, exactly. His, his recent scandal aside, if Harvey yes. Weinstein doesn't arrive at that later stage in the film's life then the King's, the King's speech that we know as that world-famous phenomena never happens, That's does it? But let's, same let's, with let's, Millionaire. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, Millionaire, even when it was made, it was... I remember, I remember speaking to Elliot Grove at Raindance. You know, there's a, a festival that showed it. Not, not the most prestigious festival in the world, but certainly one that's known on the UK film circuit. Now, yeah. if Slumdog Millionaire is getting shown there, it's kind of slushing around. It's not been recognised yet. And it's kind of interesting that that was a... I guess a slow burn, wasn't it? Um, yes. Well, this, as, as uh, John John Goldsmith said in that film, because yes. he he knows quite well about the film industry. He's been on film policy. He's worked at Channel Four. He's been part of the uh, president of the Directors UK. Um, so yeah. he's he's had, had an illustrious career as well. Hmm. And he told us about Slumdog Millionaire. Why it was going straight to DVD. Hmm. Um, Salador paid what? Get in, inputted 14 million, Channel 4 put in 1 million. When it got produced and made, it was going straight to DVD. When Harvey Weinstein came in and bought it for an you know, unbelievably small amount of money, put in another 15, 20 million probably into it, and then ended up making 250 million and winning a boatload of Oscars. So it's not about how good the film is. I've seen so many bad films at the cinema. It's not about how No, I mean, I must admit, it was a very, an interesting point you met, that you, you get across in, your, in, your, in the documentary is um, that, that because of the way that the, 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 the public bodies are set up, we are breeding a generation of form fillers, not producers, you know, not That's people true. who are thinking in terms of the entrepreneurial bottom line of the film they're making. So it's about, can I get from A to B, which is get myself this little bit of money, which will help me get a script to a next draft or get me a casting director that can hopefully get me cast, you know, whatever it might be. Yeah, it's, that's it's right. Always, it's always a bridge to something. And then it becomes a job of like, you know, the, 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 the biggest steps, which is how do you get out in the world? Because of the way the, the, the structures are once you're finished with the movie is it's, you're almost powerless no matter how creative you might be. <laughs> But let, but let, let me let me just just really in a second before before we get into more detail about about the content. So so the interesting thing for people who haven't seen this yet is you didn't just do you know your critique and look at policies and tell us to camera that it's it was done badly or it was done well or it was this or it was that. You speak to people that people will recognise the film industry. You speak to names that people recognise industry if they didn't know that if they didn't know them 
before you speak to them. So I'm thinking like Jonathan Gems as a screenwriter say, it's not someone, it's not a name that would roll off most people's tongues, but clearly sure. his, his IMDb list is, is to be envied if you're a screenwriter. Um, sure. And obviously Stephen Frears, Alan Parker, David Putnam, Ben Kingsley pulls no punches, does he? In his view of <laughs> things. But also you did speak to the people that were working within these bodies. And I mean, and I thought, I thought is it's uh, is it Martin Woodward the no, John Woodward John yeah. Wood, sorry John Woodward yeah. um, uh, the former CEO of the UK Film Council that was disbanded and and the the staff were moved into as part of what is we now know as the British Film Institute um, and I thought one of the most illuminating parts of your kind of fact finding wasn't wasn't so much any sort of scandal you revealed it was more like a sort of mini a mini shocker moment where you sort of asked the question what skill sets do you need to run a screen agency and screen agency for those listening the uk film council had a job of setting up regional screen agencies so yorkshire northwest northeast and so on and so forth so these were these were meant to be a kind of hub for well they were meant to be for what we don't know and that's what your obviously your documentary unearths but when you ask yeah. him that question and he finishes off with his list of public sector buzzwords. I think I can't. I don't know who's which of your voices it is, but you you say, but you haven't mentioned film. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that was that was uh, that wasn't John Woodward. That was um, John Newbegin. John Newbegin from Creative England. He was okay. the new CEO of Creative England. Sorry, uh, sorry. Yeah, no, no. And uh, again, we were really grateful for them to give us the interview. Yeah. The thing with John, we really respect him, but I think it was, it was Lord David Putnam. Once we had our interview with him, yeah. there's certain things that we discussed, which are off camera and off the record. Of course. Um, and then he, he helped us get, uh, uh, you know, approached because uh, John Newbing used to, they used to work together and they've got a real fantastic history and past and where mm -hmm. they used to work together. So he helped us get John Newbing um, because I don't think John Newbing would have probably ignored us possibly. I don't know. Um, to be take part in the film, but um... so what was that? What was that journey like for you to get? I mean, any of the people on it, if you're going to ask them to speak frankly about what essentially is the place they work, you yeah, know, that's not an easy ask, is it? Are you are you are you selling are you selling them a white lie, or are you? Are you no, no. Um, I mean, the pr approach actually uh, was really uh, to be straightforward. Was on the level. I mean, mm. what Robin really, Robin was the one that really was the. The brains behind getting access to these names through emailing and getting through to certain agents and um and basically he wrote up a really interesting just a heartfelt letter about look this is who we are we're fell filmmakers from the midlands uh we don't believe we have a film industry or access to employment in this region um this is our view we think that public money has been wasted and we think that you know rather than waste it on just bureaucracies and salaries and and, and backhanders people who just want to make short films just so that they can say they've made a short film rather than waste all that public money on those things why not why don't we just set up independent cinemas just for british films and it was as brutal and it was as as um as as simple as that essentially that's brilliant now because because that that, that 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 like you that, that pulls on the punches, does it? it, and it yes. but, so your 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 subjects who are talking on camera are under an illusion as to why exactly. you're pointing a camera and asking them questions. That's right. I mean, we had some really interesting responses from people who didn't appear on camera, like from Emma Thompson and from. Um, yeah, uh, Richard yeah. Richard Attenborough, who sadly um, passed away just before he passed away, he wrote us a note wishing us well, and also as Rob just said, Ian McKellen. Uh, we had letters from them. They couldn't appear in the film because of work commitments, but they were very supportive. And um, what that really, that gave us a real shot in the arm as independents, because it meant that here 
we were from a, a, a sort of, as Rob alluded to, from a grassroots perspective. Mm. And we were actually, we were actually, um, we were connected with people who had illustrious work in the industry. We had mm. a connection. And that connection was that we don't have a British film industry. Mm. And so, in other words, both sides of the, of the fence were actually, if you, if you were to be honest, you were actually seeing the same page. Mm. And that was what gave us a shot in the arm because it meant that we had a story to tell. Now, so now, have- now, just on say, sorry, Robin. Now, people listening to that, that mantra of we don't have a film industry will find that a bit odd. And obviously, if you watch the film, you, you'll, you'll see why that makes sense. It's not to say that we don't have people making films here. Um, mm. But what we have is a lot of work for people who work in the, I guess, the behind the camera thing. Uh, in, in technicians in big, who are brilliantly expertise. They're innovative. They're, they're, they're skillful. And they well, speak. We're the best in the world. And they in, speak. In the and they world, speak. Yeah. And they speak English. Um, that's which, right. Which to Hollywood is, it's kind of like that's our blessing and our curse at the same time. It is. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. uh, it's the blessing in the sense that Star Wars and Warner Brothers and all those people will will come and shoot their movies here. Um, yeah. Great work here. Yeah. But it's a curse, like you said, you intimated in the earlier sort of part of this conversation, in the sense that it begins to swamp whatever English or British culture is with American. I mean, I remember, funny enough, I remember reading an essay not long ago, um, I say not long ago, probably 10 years now, um, written by a kind of big right-wing capitalist in America, where basically he was he was proposing that all the world outsources its culture to Hollywood. Yes. You know, he, yes. he wasn't pretending it was anything but that. He was saying, look, you countries, you've got small GDPs and la, 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 la. We've got this thing called Hollywood. Just outsource your culture. We'll do it for you. And I th- yes. and it sounds really <laughs> ugly when you hear it like that. But then when you when yeah. you unpack your film, you yeah. actually kind of show how history has gone from being this vibrant thing that was very British and had product that was identifiably British in all different yes. ways. I mean, it wasn't like they were all, it wasn't like a, a mono set of films. There was some very different characteristics to all the films, but they were British was a, was the thing that tied them all together. And then a kind of post Thatcher getting into power, a kind of yes. slow dismantling of any priority given to the need to make British films. And, a, and almost like, instead of, instead of going, well, can you outsource, can we outsource it to you? We've just basically handed it to Hollywood. I think. Definitely. Yes, I mean, that's absolutely true. I mean, that's irrefutable. And um, if you look at the um, uh, talents that were coming out when we were making films independently as, as, a, as a British nation, if you look at the talents from Richard Burton to, you know, um, uh, Alec Guinness, Kenneth Williams, Sid James, we had all these interesting uh, characters that were um, creating work, not only in cinema, but because they were able to be seen on the screens, they were able to host mm. uh, theatre productions, they were able to open theatre productions. And sell them out. And sell them out. In, I was going to say that, but I think that's the other, I mean, it's not something you needed to cover in your film, but I think parallel to what was happening with this kind of mistrust of British film or yeah. property was also the dismantling of community theatre, which would, for it's a lot fun. of working class people, was a route into acting because you could, you could earn a living. And then when you, take, when you take the funding out of that, Mm. Then the, the, we're, 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 we're decapitated. I mean, where's the next Joe Orton going to come from? If there's if there's no um, access to uh, or, or incentive or um, or opportunity, then we're not going to we're going to stifle our creative talent. Because our stars had no choice but the, to, to go to Hollywood. They had to go to America to be able mm. to work. So then they can build our theatres. So now we have Danny DeVito coming in, you know, fantastic Danny DeVito coming in, doing a theatre show and selling it out. But then. 
you know, we have, um, what do you call it at Christmas? And they have pantomimes. That's what yeah, we yeah, have now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's become well, a, a laughing stock. Yeah. When, when, you, when you were kind of looking at, when you were firing all your bullets out to go, like, let's get these people to talk to us on camera. Yeah. Had you, had you, did you, between you, did you draw up a shortlist of like who you had to have or you didn't have a film? Or was it more suck it and see what we get? It was, yeah, it, was, it was more the latter, to be honest. I mean, what Rob did was Rob, Rob initially, initially the game plan or the uh, mindset, certainly my mindset was, was to make a very, very small film. And it is a very, very small film, you know, um, but, but to make a film that was really from the point of view of, um, disenfranchised or UK British filmmakers, independent filmmakers, and no names, you know, people who were, weren't established. Mm -hmm. That was my initial um, sort of um, idea, uh, which Rob agreed with. But Rob had bigger ideas, and he also recognised that in, or in order for people to really take interest, you needed names in there that would sort of, you know, um, allow people to sort of um, give people a handle on this. And um, he said, "He let's just try it. Let's just put feelers out there. Let's talk. I mean, we've had conversations with Glenda Jackson. We've had conversations with or letter correspondence with all these names that weren't in the film. Yeah. And um, and this was, um, you know, a real coup because it meant that uh, because of the responses, the positive responses that we had from um, people like uh, the names that we mentioned. And um, Kenneth Branagh and so forth. And people like Kenneth Branagh were very, very, very close to actually participating in the film. And he wrote to us and he was seriously considering about being in the film. I mean, in the end, he didn't. He didn't. And that was partly, we think, because of, um, was it the Marilyn Oscars. Monroe? Was it the um, Monroe film? Uh, um, he was in, yeah. Yeah. Um, that film. He was nominated for an Oscar. Yeah. And I think it might have and been... his a, time and scheduling, everything. Yeah. I think it was just one of those things where it just didn't suit him, uh, which was fair enough. And um, so uh, it really was a case of the latter, really. It was a case of let's just see who who we can get. Let's just see who who's established, who might respond to our letter, who might respond to our thesis, if you like. Mm. And um, we were pleasantly surprised. Because we, we, we started off sending off... We, we started speaking to local filmmakers and saying, would you mind doing an interview? Yeah. And every time somebody agreed to do an interview, me and Vinod would celebrate and go for a Chinese or go for a... Go for a Why go not? A Why not? Yeah. And then yeah. you know, we got Graham Young from the Birmingham Mail and we were like, oh my God, I can't believe we've got a real film critic. Somebody's taking us seriously. Um, and then, as I said, I started sending off so many letters, I lost count, um, to for one person, I'd send off 10, 12 letters to 10, 12 different addresses that I'd find online or agents and so forth, just to see if I get a response. And the first response was from Kenneth Branagh. Like an interesting story, I, I, wrote, I even wrote to Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, his agent never got back to me, and he was doing Lincoln at the time. Yeah. And being such a, 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 class, a working class actor, um, I, I, found out, I found his home address. Now, how I found it, I'll, I'll leave it to everybody else's imagination. But I, I sent him a handwritten uh, letter to his home address, after which point I heard back from his agent saying, don't please ever send any correspondence to his home address, which I can completely understand. But again, we're desperate filmmakers. We've got nothing to lose. Let's just, as you said, shake the tree and see what falls out. No, I think, I think that's an interesting thing for people listening who, who, are, who are looking to do their documentary, not necessarily if they're going to do one on something that might be a, a bit controversial to those you want to speak to, but any kind of documentary, I suppose, is that shaking the tree and seeing what falls off is mm -hmm. is as is the approach. Because if you do nothing, then nothing happens, does it? Is I guess the, yeah. the, the yeah. logic. Yeah. Exactly. We had nothing to lose. We 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 uh, had everything to gain. As I said, our ambition was let's just even if we filmed local filmmakers, we'll put it on YouTube. 
there's still potential in the future. We are probably going to put the film on YouTube because I think the message is really important. Young filmmakers, you, you need to know what the re reality of it is. Um, I'm not saying that no, everyone's equally talented or not talented and they'll find their own path and find their own way. But by knowing the stuff that's in our film can only be of advantage to them. No, without a doubt. I think, I think, I think that's, you know, that's certainly, I mean, I've, I've had the advantage of a lot of people of all the filmmakers I've ever interviewed in this podcast. So in a way I've had the information that you consolidate into your film sort of peppered onto me slowly, but surely. So, you know, yeah. when you, when you hear the same thing a hundred times, it begins to sink in. Um, sure. But I think that's what I think you've done well with your, um, with, with your documentary is you've, you've boiled it down to, um, to essentially two things, I feel, um, tell me if I'm wrong, but you've got, you've got the kind of structural unfair advantage that exists in terms of getting your film exhibited. Yes. And, and you've got the seemingly cluelessness, strategically speaking, of how yes. public money is spent and why it's spent on yes. any kind of British film endeavour. It doesn't matter what it is. There doesn't mm. appear to be a, a wider strategy. Like, for example, I've dealt with... Um, with Norwegian film funds to do with stuff and just speaking to them about how they're doing it. And they, they're pretty clear. There's nothing, there's nothing, there's nothing untoward about their ambitions to getting people there. They want a, to advertise Norway to the world in a film. Yeah. Yes. And they want to employ Norwegian people making films so they can increase their skill sets. That's their ambition for getting films made. And, and if that was something that you could boil down what the BFI was up to, that would be mm. a fairly honorable ambition, but, but we, 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 we get when, when you have David Cameron coming out of the King's speech saying, make more films like this, it's kind of yeah, it's, yeah. it's a meaningless thing. But I, I do yeah. I do think that the, the latest round of sort of BFI strategy is beginning to sort of shake. I don't think I don't think it's 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 any it's a direct result to, to you making the film, but I think it's a direct response to what people are saying, because I think they're I think they're changing their own remit, aren't they, about um what a feature film is, you know, obviously feature oh, yeah. film to the BFI used to mean it had to get theatrical release. Well, right. as, as your film explains, getting a theatrical release is a bit, bit of a kind of blunt thing to try and aim for if you've got yeah. no control over the uh, distribution of movies. So it seems that that's sort of something that's made, that maybe progress has moved, has moved out the way, but that, well, that, I, I don't. I don't really follow what they're doing at the moment, Stuart. But again, my issue with it is, first of all, they need to re-examine and re-establish what the definition of a British film is. It's really confusing. People think so many films that they watch, they think that it's a British film. Now, um, and we we were quite confused actually. It was Jonathan Gems who helped us to mm. highlight what is a British film, and he used that example. You know, uh, a foreign film they did two weeks post-production in London, and it was defined as a culturally as a British film, so they got funding. So on the BFI's list of um, British films, you'll see a list of films there that you'll think it's absolutely absurd that it's a British film. Like, again, we, we made highlight, highlighted it in our film. What was the film called? With, um, Gravity. Gravity. Gravity won Best British Film at the BAFTAs. You know, the definition of a British film needs to be redefined. Um, it should be distribution. It should be who makes the decisions. doesn't matter who's in it. doesn't matter who's written it. doesn't matter who's directed it. It's the, the, the buses where the tax money comes back um, and again who makes the decisions of what's going to be in the film and who's going to star in the film that is for me personally what defines a, a British film the other thing as well the BFI I don't think still fall under the FOI so they're not they're a public body public agency they receive uh, public funds but they don't fall under the Freedom of Information Act now be, they, be, they voluntarily 
give you information if you ask. But still, they're not under the, the under the FOI. So that is what makes me dubious about anything that they do. Is that, um, because, is, that because, is that is that to do? I mean, you you explain this about the screen agencies, don't you? Because it's to do with the fact that they're twenty. I mean, the screen agencies you describe in the documentary are twenty five percent public funded, and then seventy five percent is 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 their business. And obviously, the BFI have a have a have a business of trying to raise money through their activities and business decisions they take as well, aren't they? They're not fully, they're not one hundred percent funded, are they? Yeah, no, but you yeah. get you. But how do you how do you how do you distinguish the difference then? If somebody gets a ten percent or one percent of public funding, mm. you know, how do you define where that money goes? I've, and I've no idea. I mean, I'm sure this is this you know, is to do with we have MP, we had we, we had MPs who were confused. We spoke to MPs who thought, of course, they're under the FOI. Um, uh, uh, the UK Film Council, the screen agents, of course, they're under the FOI. This is public funded bodies. Um, you know, that's why they 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 have to be held accountable. No, and I think I think that's, but I think that's that's an interesting point that you've you've, you've identified in your in, in your documentary that obviously is is not going to resolve itself in two minutes, but but it's uh, it's clearly it's clearly a problem if 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 people can if people go public money, not freedom of information that doesn't seem to go. Now, um, in your in in your in your pursuit of your hypothesis, who killed British cinema? What for you was the biggest surprise that you discovered that that wasn't what you was expecting? Uh, that's a good question, actually. Uh, there were certainly some surprises. Um, I think the, um, I think certainly in respect of defining a British film for me was a surprise because mm. initially I, I would have classed, a, I would have classed, say, you know, a Harry Potter or a, or a Bridget Jones. I would have classed it as a or a Notting Hill. I would have classed it as a British film on the basis of where it was located and the actors and the directors and that kind of thing. Mm. So it was actually it was actually quite a learning curve to to recognise that if, like Robin alluded to earlier, if the key decisions of a production are essentially foreign, in other words, in this case Hollywood, then essentially what you're getting in the production are the sensibilities of that culture because the key decisions and of who's starring in that film. And what, what, how that film is put together is essentially from that perspective. So it's what I call tourism films. So they're films that are appeasing to a sensibility of how another culture views us. It's not how we view ourselves. It's not your experience or my experience. I mean, it's, it's something that I said recently on um, Russia TV, which is that um, uh, how often do we see ourselves as Brits on the screen? In other words, your school life, my school life, our experience growing up, your experience as a student, my experience. We see all these things in American culture all the time. We see high school, we see American football, we see American, you know, uh, diversity of characters and personalities. And we don't see any of them. Uh, how many times do you see Halifax or Doncaster or Leeds or Burnley? Or I mean, how often are they on the cinema screens? And yet we spout that we have this amazing British industry it's 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 that that was what was um my learning curve it was actually recognizing that it was a complete sham that it was a complete scam that that we were actually being hoodwinked and we were kind of being um uh without realizing it because of our language commonality with america we kind of were being brainwashed into believing that by being subservient to hollywood was a good thing you know, so in other words, having American productions being made here was being sold to us as something that was good. And it was good to a degree for the technicians and for the employment. But like Robin said earlier, if you, the government's responsibility has to look out for the culture of the landscape. And that was that was a that was a real shock. So what, you, what you're saying is uh, Vinnie Jones portrayed as the leader of a football hooligan gang on Euro yeah. trip. It's not really how football hooligans behave. 
Well, I mean, I, I mean, it can be. I mean, I, I no, mean, no, I sir, no. I'm joking. I'm joshing with you. It's it's one of the most appalling. Uh, representations of something that they go, this is what British culture is. It's football hooligans. Yeah. yeah and- well, Green Street. If you, if you watch a film like Green Street, where you've got, I think, um, an American sort of propping it up, you know, mm. I mean, it's not really how West Ham or East, I mean, the East End is a fantastically uh, vibrant and incredible part of, of the world, actually. Mm. And obviously, America will come in and make a, an expose on, on, like, you know, in this case, say, football hooliganism. And it, it doesn't have a clue because it's from the American perspective. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm sure you're aware. I mean, that it's, it's, it's a complete misrepresentation. Yeah. And, and Stuart, from my point of view, that is an interesting question that you asked because I hadn't really thought about it until now. What was the most shocking thing that I discovered? No, surprising, surprising, not shocking. Cause I think, I think you can go in with, you, you, you obviously had a reason to ask that question from what you'd yeah. already observed. So making the documentary, was there things that you were surprised to learn or what did you learn that, that was that was not what See, you were expecting? For me, it was it was the realisation as I was going on and interviewing all these illustrious people who, as I said, the, you know, that hour of sitting with someone like Michael Kuhn taught me more about the film industry than three years at university being taught by somebody who's never made a film. Mm. Um, you know, it's someone like him who should have been in charge of the UK film industry and the UK film policy. You know, he used to be, he used to, not, 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 a lot of people, not a lot of people know who he was. He was the ex-boss um, of Polygram. Mm. Um, now, the, what, the, what, what was shocking for me... He was, by the way, I must admit, he was, he was amazing. He was one of, one of your best subjects, I think, in the film. <laughs> yeah. Unbelievable. And it's, not a na- and it's not a name that rolls up, that, that, that people will be that familiar with, but he clearly... No, no, that's right. But, well, listen, he, he was piped to be the head of the UK Film Council, but then uh, Alan Parker, uh, a director, who received it. Now, Alan Parker, obviously, he's got his own stature and he's a fantastic director. But, you know, in that kind of role, for me personally, you needed a producer. You needed someone like a Michael Kunt who, mm. who had experience of running a proper private company being Polygram Films. Now, but what was shocking for me, the realisation is I started discovering that what we needed was a quota. What we needed was access to exhibition. Now, what was shocking for me is all these public bodies that were set up. There's no way I'm not smarter than they are. There's no way that they didn't realise that that's the problem. So the fact that they went 10 years, the UK Film Council went 10 years and never once tried to address, mm. let's set up a quota system so we can have a proportion of British films being shown at the cinema. The fact that they didn't realise that and that they didn't do that, to me, thinks there's something else at play because it's just unfathomable that they mm. should do that. But, do, um, but I, got the, I got the impression people realised that they just knew that it was an, it was a pointless it was a pointless reason, pointless thing to pursue because obviously it's it's an, the only people you're attacking with a quota is is Hollywood productions, isn't it? It's 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 interesting way you worded that. It's not that we we would we wouldn't word it like we were attack we'd be attacking. No, no, quote, no, not you personally. No quota quotas. I mean, I'm not. I'm, I agree with you completely. But what I mean is, is for the government, I mean, obviously, screen agencies and, and the UK Film Council, as was, and the BFI, have a job, and, they, and they, 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 they need to develop film talent regionally, nationally, you know, make, product, make British films producible and all that kind of shenanigans and, and, and increase skill sets and whatever else. But in reality, and read between the lines, I'm not saying it's all explicit in what people say, but reading between the lines, I, I got the impression everyone knows that the big the big ticket thing that Britain could do is introduce a quota system because it's the only thing that works everywhere else in the world, and yet right. we're the only country that doesn't have it because of our blessed yeah. tongue. Um, yeah. is the same. And what I mean by attack, I mean is if Britain was to decide to to tomorrow to have a tariff on American movies, 
because that's what a quota system would be. It'd be saying you can't have ten percent of screens. <laughs> yeah. it, it might not be money that you're actually asking them to pay, but you're saying you cannot have ten percent of screens. Yes, that's right. Which I prime minister is going to sign yeah. that off? Well, I think well, this is where we this is where lobbying government is is if if government aren't put under the pressure. Mm. to um, do this for the longevity and future of British film, then they won't do it because, you know, um, I mean, part of, um, uh, I mean, big business now lobbies governments, big business. I mean, essentially politicians are there for votes. Mm. It's not necessarily national interest. And um, so, you know, they will only do what serves them individually as opposed to what serves the nation, the national greater good. Uh, the only way they will um, take this head on is if there's a challenge, which, which is why we made the documentary because it needs to be out there. That, that a lot no, of no, I think the conversation. I think you're right. I think I think starting a conversation is an important part of the journey to getting there. Because, yeah, and because... I think I think like Robin said, I think a lot of young filmmakers aren't aware. They think that if their script is good enough and uh, you know they're talented enough, it, people will pick it up. And what we've realised, and this was another shocking thing to go back to your other question, which was that it, it soon became apparent that it wasn't about talent. It wasn't about how good you were. It, it, it really was. Um, and 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 also the other shocking thing was is just how naive I was. You know, because obviously in the early days after film school, I, I assumed that you know if you wrote a script that was good enough, you know you'd find some sort of development I mean, be able to sort of, you know, get the ball rolling, you know, and, um, and I, I didn't realize just how naive I was. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, these bureaucrats aren't going to read all these scripts that come their way. You know, there has to be uh, some sort of editing process. And, and, and one of the things that we uncovered in the documentary is that part of that editing process is really about who your relationships are. And um, so um, a lot of a lot of young people. I, mean, I know that that's the way the world works, but uh, I, I really understand. But to be honest with you, though, I mean, it's interesting that you, you, you say that because there's the the, the the kind of filter system that exists to to giving talent access to the means of producing their creation is mm. you know is is either the biggest the bigger independents or smaller parts of studios picking up screenplays which is a complete crapshoot because there's tens of thousands of screenplays knocking about so one of the one of the barriers or gatekeepers might be your agent now yeah there's getting an agent then so so there's 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 writing scripts good enough to have an agent to even get you onto the to the table playing the game and then yeah, there's yeah. and then there's Stuart Wright agents as opposed to United Artists United Artists yeah. obviously have a lot of talent on their books so their their ability to get people to look at scripts of their writer if they can present a uh, talent actor A along with the script, makes them a much more powerful position, doesn't it? So yeah. there's a whole game going on that isn't necessarily about, like you say, the simple ability to produce work of of a good enough quality. And also, I think I think people aren't all trying to make a decent film in inverted commas, whatever that means. Yes, people are just trying to make a film, which. Feels like yes. feels like people are cheating then, because you know. Well, I, no, no, I, what it is, you do not is because people can't get tested, <clears throat> and, I, and I put myself in the category just as much. People people can't get tested, so they go out and call it. Because I'm too embarrassed to call myself a filmmaker because I haven't made a real, really a film that's gone on the cinema. So I call myself a videographer or a video producer. Um, I saw this. this I happened. saw this film at Prince Charles, so that's the cinema, as far as I'm concerned. But <laughs> <laughs> I'm grateful for that. But then there's lots of young guys and young people who would call themselves filmmakers, but they've ne have never had the opportunity to put their work out there to an audience and be judged. That's why there's so many media students. That's why there's so many filmmakers out there today. Um, now, don't get me wrong. Most of them, or a lot of them, probably be really phenomenally talented. But there's a lot of them who are getting duped by 
media courses, film courses. Tony Klinger was in that film. This is the son of Michael Klinger, one of the best producers that Britain have ever produced. Tony, um, Tony's been on the podcast. Yeah, Tony, as a writer, filmmaker, producer, he's prolific. And again, he's an education as well. Just spending uh, Mm. an hour with that man in a room, you will walk out a smarter person. Mm. Um, And so he's, and he he knows, he knows systematically in the education system how bad it is because people being sold to do this media course, a filmmaking course, well, they're never going to get a job and they're never going to make a film. If they do make a film, they'll put it on YouTube. Oh, if you're good enough, it's going to be found on YouTube. You'll be discovered. It doesn't work like that. Um, you know? Now, so, now well, let's, let's wrap things up now, just very quickly. Um, let's tell people. So there's, there's a book and a film. They're both called Who Killed British Cinema? How do people they, get, they, how do people watch the film? How can people get the DVD? How can people? So, so the, the DVD and the book and the, the paperback and hardback are available on whokillbritishcinema.com. Okay. Or you can, you can you can also go to Amazon and buy the the you can stream the video stream the film uh you can you can uh, buy the DVD you can buy the Kindle of the book the paperback and you can buy the paperback. Um, we've also got another book that we're hoping to release. Yeah, go on. This book that we've released is more of an academic book. Okay. Um, Jonathan uh, this one is called Failure: The Private Fallacy of a British Film Industry. So this one will be more in tune with. Um, your earlier sort of idea about how the process of making the film and that journey as two yeah. sort of embryonic filmmakers. And, and we're hoping that, that that journey will be appealing to younger people who are hoping to embark on a journey like that. So Absolutely. how we got into a room with Ben Kingsley and that kind of thing. And so hopefully it will inspire others to sort of, you know, if they've got ideas to maybe, um, you know, try out. Because even though it might not lead to um, profit, but it might lead to some sort of legacy or artistic fulfillment so we're hoping to release that by the end of the year but again the who killed british cinema book is kind of like a, a academic book the one that we've released now mm. so that again that and the dvd and the you can get from our website or you can buy from amazon <coughs> right then so let's i said we're going to end on a positive note so give <laughs> uh, now I, I, I through research i've done in the past one of the shan examples of where there is hope would be in south korea South Korea mm. was the epitome of laissez-faire economics. And mm. in the early 90s, they introduced a quota system. Uh. And by 2000s, you had what you now know as the, certainly from a genre point of view, a thriving Korean uh. horror business mm. that mm. was able to get exhibitions in, in, in Korea as a core business. But then obviously the world took note and went, do you know what, we quite like this, this South Korean mm-hmm. Culture and interestingly, even though that was happening internally, there was a view that it's a horror film. Therefore, the, the kind of middle class elite would go, "Well, that doesn't represent our culture." But, but in in a way, it is because it's only it was only South Korean voices and it's a South Korean storytelling. So, the fact that it isn't about middle class societies neither here nor there. So that was kind of interesting for me. But but there there's a country that had no film industry at all. Never mind the history of one. Sure. And then turn that around in about fifteen years, in a fifteen years from the moment they made a decision. So, what would be your? What's the hope you see from having made this documentary and uh, who killed British cinema? And also, the what's the name of the book you're doing now? The follow up to this you're doing now? The more it's um it's called Failure: The Private Fallacy of a British Film Industry. Okay, so so give yeah. give give my listener some hope yeah. that you see in terms of being a filmmaker in the UK. I think one of the hopes I would give the listener is the fact that I think the um, Chinese market in respect of what um, exhibition is catering for 
uh, is going to run out at some point. You know, the the idea of just superhero action Marvel films is going to at some point for DX, all this sort of gimmicky kind of stuff that are entering our cinemas is going to dry up at some point. So we're we're going to go. It's cyclical. There's going to be a demand for human stories, I think. And um, and that's something that I want to encourage people because writing doesn't cost anybody anything. You don't have to max out your credit cards, you know. So um, keep writing, you know. Keep putting your ideas out there. I'm I'm writing as as I mentioned with this next book. Mm. Um, that's something that I'd like to give faith and hope to because that won't um, uh, cost you anything. And um, at some point there will be a demand for those small independent, uh, interesting, quirky stories. Stuart, we've got got in in one cinema, one multiplex, four screens are generally dominated by one film now. You've got 4DX, 3DX, IMAX, 2D. Um, That's just the minimum. So one film will be shown on four screens. It gives the audience less opportunity to see different films. As well as nurturing new talent, what we need to do is nurture the audience as well. The audience need to, and I think that, as we all said, they're rightly doing it. They're looking for alternative places to find content and find things that are interesting to them now. So I think as time goes by, it it can only improve because the audiences will just stop going to the cinema. Wow, we don't want that to happen. No, we don't. I mean, cinemas are changing. And uh, I mean, I've worked in the cinema for the last 20 years. So, I mean, cinemas are a changing entity at the moment. And, and it's I think the as Ken Loach alluded to in the documentary, I think there's always an interest in people going commun- and watching a film in a, in a communal environment and, and in a dark place. And it's, a, you know, it's an escape. It's a shrine. It's a temple. It's whatever it is for any. All of us are movie lovers. So we, we have our own needs. There'll always be a demand for that, I feel. Because um, we're being approached by coffee shops and underground places now to asking us, to, can we please show the film? Well, no, mm. I mean, I mean, I, I, we, we've run out of time here, but I mean, that's something that I've I've cottoned on to. Like, my friends do a pop-up cinema in Walthamstow, and mm. community and local cinemas that aren't a cinema in the in in the sense it's a purpose-built building are a very real phenomena, aren't they? And uh, I've seen mm. films like. Um, there was the, um, oh goodness gracious, Tony Benn documentary that basically showed in town halls oh, yes. that he'd spoken. Will, Will and Testament, yeah. Yeah, you know, or there's the Northern mm. Soul film that was a crowdfunder and then they went and played in all the places where they crowdfunded. And wow. and so, and I remember speaking to a guy who made a £10,000 film and he said, if I could get shown in all the, all the pop-up cinemas in Britain, obviously I'd make a profit. You know, yeah. so, so there is... There's the, 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 even without a quota system, there is a there is a there is a kind of market within the the, the boundaries of the British Isles that, mm. that can that can nurture a film at a certain cost. Obviously, it doesn't yeah. nurture a three hundred million pound film, but who's raising that kind of money? But you know, so it's about how do you make films to be uh, sellable? But that's a whole different conversation. Let's pick that up when we talk about your book later in the year. We'll talk. We'll talk Fantastic. because there's plenty on plenty on to do. But I'll I'll put in a link. If you send me links, I'll put them in the show notes to the book, the Kindle, the the, the DVD, and etc. Yeah. etc. Um, but so it just leaves me to say thanks, guys, for giving us your time. Come talk on the Britflix podcast. The Britflix podcast is provided absolutely free. If you want to help me get the podcast out to more people, please take a moment to leave a review on iTunes. Or if you want to help me out directly, there's a link in the show notes to my Patreon page. All contributions are welcome. And the music is by Chris Reed of thecomposers.tv. 